Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like buckets, rockets and pandas. Or the sky, being sly, the shy, dry, the question why and the I. I I struggled to get all of them work here. Um, However, Sam, I think we should really be doing... Backwardness, disbelief, idiocy, shock, horror. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I feel we are living in utterly historic times, as always. But the news from Friday, um, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, had me in just utter disbelief, utter historical disbelief. Uh, So I think we need to deal with that as a podcast. I think we definitely need to deal with it. Let's um, do disbelief because that's dis- a cracker. I think disbelief is just yeah. I think I think it's I think it is it is absolutely extraordinary in one of the most civilized countries in the world that such a retrograde step should ever happen. Um, yes. Well, they do also kill people. Yes. <laughs> By lethal injection, it's not that civilized. <laughs> anyway. Uh, let me introduce my fellow um, presenter. I would say that if history was no more than a collection of unusual local edible delicacies, this man would be, A, most certainly in his element, and B, he would include the humble Cornish pasty on his list of yummy, portable, pastry-covered meat snacks as he wandered the great pie ships of the past, testing, swilling, spitting out the half-chewed meats like a wine connoisseur, sampling the finest of vintage clarets, but with meat and gristle. He is the Professor of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. How are you? We are totally out of step today, because what we should be doing is, in fact, following links in our minds as we come across them, explaining (laughs) how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of bunting is, in fact, all about celebrations, pageantry, and, of course, Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. It's also all about penance and naval history, Southern pride, and US flags. Or that the history of the flea is in fact all about Victorian miniature dressed fleas and Mexican cultural traditions. It's about real life flea circuses and it's also all about the English Renaissance poet John Donne's influence on World War One 
poetry. It's also all about the movement of disease and the plague. But if you are wondering, can you see seamlessly here, wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a pasty-related historian, he'd be a pastry parcel filled with historical chuckstake flavoured with the gravy of archival endeavour on the one side, and on the other, a sweet second course of historical argument fine-tuned with his signature initials pressed into the pastry he'd certainly devour the crimp of this historical pasty yes you've guessed it is the famous historical adventurer himself dr sam willis hello everyone delighted to be here so today we are doing pasties So before we go any further, Sam, I would just like to say a big shout out to Joanna from Plimpton Academy in Plymouth, who this week is doing her work experience with us, Sam. And I have had a meeting with her this morning and set her up doing all sorts of amazing things for Histories of the Unexpected. She's going to be helping us write research notes for and scripts for podcast episodes. She's going to be doing blogs and she's also going to be on our social media taking over that. So all very exciting. That's fantastic. So, uh, hello and welcome. Delighted to have you on board. Um, Now to the question at hand, James. Pasties. We are doing this as maybe the start of a summer theme of of wonderful episodes. And this this actually comes because I met a a new colleague uh, at the university who's in our uh, Department of Art and Design, Diego Zamora. And we were in a meeting the other day and we just got chatting and he was telling me about this fantastic project that he's doing at the moment. I didn't understand it at first and he sent me all sorts of notes about it and it is absolutely extraordinary. It's part of some outreach work that they do um, at the within the department and they have set up something called uh, The Plot uh, which is this uh, way in which they invite people in the community to come in. It's a community space in Stonehouse uh, and they've developed something called the Greenhouse which is a place where people can come in and play with technology in a way that supports them and how they sort of learn how to use it. Um, it's something they run with students, they run for local people, they do workshops. Check it out. It's absolutely brilliant. And one day... Um, a woman called Juliet Corbel came into the plot and met the team, and with the requ- with this following request, could they make a 3D print of a pasty for her? Now you think, what on earth? A 3D print of a pasty, why would you want that? And that was their very question to her. Like, why do you want us to do that? And Juliet went on to tell what is a fascinating story. It's a really touching story about her mother-in-law, a woman called Jennifer Loudon. And she's a really well-known person in Torpoint. Um, and she's well-known for being a pasty maker. And every week, she would make pasties for the local WI, the Women's Institute. And one morning in 2016, she just finished making a batch of... 40 pasties and she was leaving them on the side of her kitchen to allow them to cool so that they were going off to the the wi and what she did was she took her dog barney out for a walk now the sad part of this story is that on this dog walk she got tragically killed by a car Uh, This was a story that made the local papers because the dog uh, went missing after the fatal accident and the village rallied round in a sort of community way to try and find him. And, 
you know, fortunately they did. But sadly, Jennifer died on the scene. And when the police went to her property, they found 40 pasties that she'd made that morning cooling in the kitchen. Now, most of these ended up at the police station, but the family kept one pasty back and they froze it. And Juliet has had this particular pasty in the freezer since then. It's been passed around from one freezer to the other. But what she wanted to do was she wanted it to be scanned and 3D printed so that it could come out in the open. Uh, until then, she had had no luck being able to do this. Nobody was interested. Nobody really understood what she was doing. But she went along and saw these guys in art and design and their plan is that they were going to scan the pasty, which they've done, and then get it printed. Uh, and this is a really sort of, I think it's a really touching way of how you use modern digital technologies and digital fabrication in a really personal and touching way. That it actually allows you to memorialise somebody who was deeply treasured by the family. So I absolutely, when I heard this, I was utterly moved by it. I thought it was a wonderful example of how history can meet the local community and new digital technologies. And I vowed to do a, for us to do a, a history of, an unexpected history of the pasty, Sam. What do you think about that? Mm. Isn't that a amazing? wonderful story? Yeah. Isn't it amazing? No, I really, really like that. And um, I... I'm, I'm a bit sad I wasn't there to have someone walk in and ask for a 3D print of a pasty. It would have made my day. Yes, totally. <laughs> um, I was wondering how to begin with this, and I ended up going in a very strange direction because I was down in Cornwall and uh, I was eating uh, a pasty from my new favourite pasty shop, Ooh, uh, which is called Coffee your... and Kraust, and it's on the... Um, Coffee and Kraust. It's a Kraust being a an old word for food, or um, there's, there's something historical about the word Kraust. I can't remember what it is now. Um, um, they make their own homemade pasties. It's in Newquay, and delicious, huge lumps of um, big lumps of steak in it, and very peppery. You've got to have lots of pepper in a pasty. Ooh. And I was uh, munching away on the beach, and a seagull stole my pasty. Oh um, yes, a big bird, and it was a big pasty. Um, you know, about the size of a, of a kind of a hamburger, what was left of it. It was like half of an enormously large pasty. Flew off, and it swooped from behind me, over the shoulder, um, and so I couldn't see it, and it uh, very cunningly used its its sharp beak to steal the pasty and then fly off, and then it perched on a rock and ate my pasty. And um, what an awful seagull. <laughs> it is very much an awful seagull and I'm sure you all will have had experiences of being attacked by seagulls on the beach if you haven't, just go to a beach in England um, in the middle of the summer and try and eat a pasty or a, or a cone of chips or something like that and just see what happens or try, and walk, try and walk across campus <clears throat> with a sandwich our campus oh. is just full of seagulls they in fact got a, a hawk to come around and sort of scare the seagulls off. But the, the seagulls ganged up on the hawk and scared it off. Terrifying. That's quite funny. I've got a, I've got a funny a hawk story. So um, there's a school in Bristol. Um, and I was talking to the headmaster because he's got a problem with um, 
crows, I think it was, mm. pecking away at the cricket pitch and the rugby pitch. Mm. And so they got a hawk. <laughs> but the school is also near Bristol Zoo. And what happened was that the hawk was flying around, scaring off these English crows. And then and then sort of accidentally went for a bit of a fly over towards the zoo, which was full of monsters. It was like actually full of, of properly terrifying animals. Anyway, it, it vanished. Never came back. <laughs> oh, my God. My, the wor- Very good. The, I, I was camping this weekend and... Um, and some people opposite had left out a bag of rubbish overnight. And I woke up on Sunday morning to find the contents of the rubbish having been pecked by a seagull all over mm. the campsite. It was oh, disgusting. Well, I, I think we should do an episode on seagulls, James. Yeah, I think we should. I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of seagulls, I must admit. They ruined, anyway, there is a historical they ruined my wife's this. 40th birthday. Would you believe oh, that? There's That's a story terrible. for you. Okay, we'll come to that another time. Yeah. Um, the point about seagulls is they're cunning and quite easily trained, and I, I had a bit of a, a, a look into this, and there's a wonderful um, example of them from uh, a, a scheme that, in, that emerged from the British Board of Invention and Research in 1915, the First World War, and they had a problem with U-boats. Mm. And they came up with this cunning plan of feeding wild gulls from a fake periscope in the hope that the birds would come to associate submarines with food and that they would always land on them, <laughs> which I thought was a really good idea. And um, there was another one here, um, uh, uh, an admiral suggested that the gulls be taught to defecate on periscopes, thus blinding the submarine crews. So anyway, not particularly pasty related, but sort of pasty related in that it was the seagull that ate my pasty. Um, and I promise I will go on and talk about some actual pasty history in a minute, James. <laughs> I was thinking, like, having having got this sort of in, uh, like, why we should be studying pasties, uh, I then thought, how do we go around about doing an unexpected history of pasties? And I think there are very... We, we all know the sort of the, the sort of archetypal history of pasties. It can be traced back to the 12th century. You can trace it to Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour, and a letter that she wrote to him saying, hope this pasty reaches you in better condition than the last one. We can connect it to the mines and the, the idea that pasties were this sort of dish that miners could take down the mines with them. Um, there's a big debate about whether they would throw away the pastry edges to avoid being poisoned by copper dust or tin on their fingers. And I think his, historians are divided on this. You know, would would sort of poorly paid miners actually throw away a you know something that would was sort of so sustaining for them um we can think about the the phrase oggy 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 that people sing that um was actually sung in chorus at Sydney's Olympic Games Aussie 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 which comes from there which sort of comes from um from Cornish miners shouting oggy oggy tiddy oggy um at meal time um and we can also think about it in terms of in terms of tourism we can think about it in terms of how um you know how cornish pasties were were made but what i what i think is also really interesting is thinking about it in terms of the migration of cornish pasties so cornish pasties started in cornwall 
Um, and as people settled overseas, you know, there are many parts of the world where pasties were taken. And you think about Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia and the United States. Uh, and in particular, I spent quite a while uh, living in Michigan. I spent three years in Michigan and up in the Upper Peninsula, which is that bit that backs on to the Great Lakes. So it's the bit above. If you think about the hand, Michigan, the hand. Uh, and the thumb, which is where uh, Detroit is, you go right up the state, and then there you get to right up Lake Michigan, and then on the top you go over the Mackinac Bridge, and there is the Upper Peninsula. The Upper Peninsula, you know, is really famous for pasties, uh, particular kinds of pasties. So much so that on May twenty fourth in nineteen sixty eight. Um, it was dedicated National Pasty Day, a statewide National Pasty Day, um, to celebrate the the pasties there. So there we are, Sam. We can think about all of these, uh, all of these kinds of um, different ways of looking at pasties. Uh, I've yeah. got some recipes, and I'm also going to talk about a radical uh, pasty recipe. How Ooh, about that? that? Sounds interesting. Yeah, how, how, do you, that. how do you do a radical pasty recipe? fascinating have to have a think yeah um one of the questions which kind of struck me immediately is like why are we interested in pasties anyway like they, they've got a um a kind of a good reputation now they're not particularly associated with the rustic poor which is what certainly was the case before when there but it was tin miners food actually it's interesting you talking about the uh, tudor pie because there's a king having a meat pastry very different from a cornish miner in the 19th century um, and there seems to have been a bit of a transition there with pastry filled meat dishes going from um, going from the tables of the very wealthy to to the, the dark mines with no light and dirt of of the poor. Um, it's quite interesting, though, the, the current interest in it. If you go to someone like the Cornwall County Show or the Devon County, any county show, I think it's probably fair to say you'll you'll see all sorts of people talking about and selling local foodstuffs and. Uh, I think this is certainly something that's happened in my lifetime, and I think it's a reaction to globalisation uh, and industrial revolution, essentially, where where food can actually be um, made and sent all over the world. So I can sit here and I can go and have some Thai food or some Indian food or whatever it might be. And I, I think there has been a reaction to that, certainly in Britain, that really celebrates local produce. And so that's why the pasty is so popular uh, today, um, so it's a reaction against you know what's been happening about uh, with with globalisation and global trade since the nineteenth century. Um, but a little quiz, James, for you. So Cornwall, name a foodstuff associated with Cornwall. You would say a Cornish pasty. Pasty, very yes. good. Right, okay. Here are a couple of others. Okay, London uh, eels. Very good. Eels. It's ex exactly what I have written down. Oh no, Whale. no Wales, Wales. So leeks. Okay, interesting. Um, I have got Welsh cakes here. Oh, nice. Love Welsh and, cakes. And uh, lava bread and the Welsh rarebit as well, so various Ooh, others. Nice. Uh, Scotland. Haggis. Very good. Meats uh, the and Western Isles, The Western Isles of Scotland. I don't know if you've come across this. This is quite interesting. Western I'd say Scotland. some sort of seafood, I'd uh, no, say. Black pudding. Black pudding. Oh, I love Apparently black the, pudding. The actual origination of it. Um and various others. The Bedfordshire Clanger, which I've come across, brilliant. It's like a pasty, but it's more like a sausage roll, and it's got sweet stuff up one end of it. 
So um, there is uh, my point about this is that we are interested in local foods, of which a Cornish pasty is one example, and that is a reaction to changing patterns of global trade, particularly global maritime trade since the 19th century. Interesting stuff. And that, so you can you can talk about this as a more a broad question about identity. So the pasty is linked with Cornwall. But there's a very interesting kind of solo identity thing here in that pasties were often baked with each individual miner's initials on them. So you knew whose pasty it was. So there's a kind of a certainly a, a, a link with a more personal um, thing here. So maybe people were choosing what to put in their pasties. Um, and I did also think, James, you're mentioning of that mining stuff and not eating the crust um, that links to a, another whole range of interesting histories to do with um, the cleanliness of hands, people being aware of that, and also uh, arsenic, because one of the big dangers in these mines was arsenic and its awareness of um, of poisons in the environment. Um, so both of those have very lengthy, fascinating histories, and the pasty clearly fits into that, the history of manual cleanliness, which we all know about because of COVID, and um, arsenic and poisons in the environment. Ooh, very good. All that talk about um, all that talk about re- food leads me on to think about recipes, and I'm really interested in recipes because I've done a lot of work on uh, 16th and 17th century manuscript recipe books and with all sorts of things about um, about food in them, uh, as well as medicine. And one of the best examples that I've come across for a pasty recipe. Well, I've got two examples for you, Sam. One is a historical uh, Tudor vegetable pie, a recipe that comes from about 1596. Um, And it is a, and I quote, a pie of boiled meats, in other words, greens, for fish days. So it's the kind of pie you would have made on Lent or Fridays when the church said that you shouldn't... uh, you shouldn't eat meat. So another example uh, would be something called the Friday pie. Um, um, medieval pastry was sort of was really versatile, and you could put all kinds of things inside it. So you could make, you could you could fill it with meat, but also you could fill it with you know with lobster. You could fill it with savoury. You could fill it with sweet. Any kind of thing. And then, as you were saying, you could put it into all kinds of shapes and patterns. Um, but this is this is a sort of modernised recipe that takes for the pastry uh, a pound of flour, five ounces of butter, an egg. For the filling, eight ounces of mixture of spinach, cabbage, lettuce, chard, two ounces of raisins, an ounce of hard cheese, two ounces of fresh breadcrumbs, half a teaspoon of salt, uh, a teaspoon of sugar, three egg yolks raw, one egg yolk hard boiled, and a, an ounce of butter. And you make the pa- pastry by rubbing the butter and the flour, working the egg and water, knead it lightly, uh, and then you need to line a 10-inch flan dish. And then you have to deal with the greens. You take off the stalks, you shred them, you mix the ingredients, all the other ingredients together, and pack them into the dish. And then you cover them with a, with a pastry um, top, and you make your decorations on it. And then you cook it for uh, 150 degrees C for about 50 minutes to an hour, and you brush a little butter on top. So there's a, a, an example uh, there. There's also an example for a Tudor venison pie. Um, uh, and the inspiration here is from an anonymous 15th century poem, which I'm going to read you. Then comes in the second course of mickle, much pride, 
the cranes, the herons, the bitterns by their side, to partridges and the plovers, the woodcocks and the snipe, firmity for pottages with venison fine, and the umbles, entrails, um, of the dough, and all that ever comes in, capons well baked with pieces of roe, raisins of currants with spices more. And then there's a wonderful recipe from in um, uh, uh, a cookbook called The uh, Good Housewife's Jewel by Thomas Dawson, which is uh, dated, the first dating of it is 1585, and then it was reprinted in uh 1596 and then in 1610 and it has a recipe for to bake a red deer which goes into a, a venison pie um take a handful of thyme a handful of rosemary a handful of winter savory a handful of bay leaves and a handful of fennel when your liquor seeth and you parboil your venison in it put in your herbs also and parboil your venison until it be half enough then take it out and lay it upon a fair board that the water may run out of it then take a knife and prick it full of holes and while it is warm have a fair tray with vinegar therein and so put your venison in from morning until night and every now and then turn it upside down then at night have your coffin ready i think the coffin is a sort of it's not a coffin coffin it is a shortcut pastry uh sort of in the shape of a coffin this done season it with cinnamon ginger and nutmegs pepper and salt and when you have seasoned it put it in your coffin and put a good quantity of sweet butter into it then put it into the oven at night when you go to bed in the morning draw it forth and put a saucer full of vinegar into your pie at a hole at the top of it so that the vinegar may run into every place of it and then stop the hole again and turn the bottom upward and so serve it in so there we are um should you be wishing to make a chewed of venison pie, uh, you could do no you could do no worse uh, than follow that recipe. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, traditional past, um, traditionally, pasties had all sorts of things in them, not just what we get nowadays. I which love is, pasties. Um, do you love pasties? I do. I do very much like them. Um, I like a fake pasty. A fake I've got, pasty? I've got, uh, but this is a great story. Weirdly linked to your 3D pasty story oh. we began with. So it's to do with um, the Giva uh, mine, Cornish mine in Giva in Penzance. 
Um, and uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful story. So the mine opens in 1911. By the 1970s... Um, it's really quite large, and but it all goes wrong. There's a, there's a there's an upward trend in the economy and and the interest in tin mining. It all goes wrong in the mid 1980s. Price of tin drops. There's an increased demand for aluminium. Um, industrial recycling's led to a, a global instability in tin prices. Uh, they there's an appeal to the government to help subsidise the industry. It fails. Um, foreign tin producers move in. All goes wrong leads to 380 staff at the Giva tin mine being laid off in 1986. Uh, the mine is temporarily closed. Uh, uh, they start mining again a little bit between 88 and 1990, but then after that it um, it halts completely. Now there's an area of the mine called the Dry, which is really interesting. Um, it was the heart of the mine. It's where the workers showered and changed before and after shifts. The name itself came from a period when steam engines powered the Cornish mines. You've got hot steam pipes, create a, a place where miners could dry their clothes off um, before uh, and after they work underground. And before that, you've got miners often walking several miles home in soaking wet clothes. Anyway, um, February 1990, this is when it's properly closed. This is from the memoirs of Ian Davy, a worker. And um, the management call the meeting. Some of the miners have never even seen some of these people before. Uh, they're told that the mine was shut from that moment, uh, as it was being said, 7.15am. They're told to take all of their personal belongings away. Anything left would be burned. And they literally lock the door of the dry in this mine on that day. And uh, it stayed closed until 2001. When it was reopened as part of an expansion, the mine became a visitor attraction and they decided to expand where everyone could go. Anyway, so uh, some historians, archaeologists, anthropologists went in and looked around and um, they were trying to find archaeological evidence of all sorts of things. One of which was humour. Trying to find evidence of humour and they found it in that there was a fake pasty on the desk of the supervisor and it had been untouched and it had been there uh, god knows why it had been given but it was there all of that time and I, james i thought that was a really smashing story and it then led me to think about um the, the, the dangers of pasties obviously a fake pasty or a 3d printed pasty isn't going to cause you much trouble um and i would now go and get a pasty from a pasty shop in cornwall without worrying about getting ill this was not always the case and there's a rather splendid description that I found of someone getting food poisoning from a pasty in 1976. Ooh, yuck. It's, yeah, I mean, it's not a personal kind of description. It, it's interesting because it's, a, it's an official government one. And mm. that, of course, relates to um, reports of outbreaks. So if you get salmonella now, you get some kind of food poisoning. The government have to know about it. They have to know how you got ill, why you've got ill, and trace it all down. And that, that system obviously didn't always exist. But this is an episode um, last summer, so 1975. A student at a technical college developed fever and abdominal cramps, followed by acute diarrhoea with much blood, mucus and pus in the stools, but no vomiting. A Shigella infection was thought likely, but despite extensive examination of cerebral specimens, no pathogenic organisms were at first identified. 
Uh, serial tenfold dilutions of stools cultured on McConkie's agar yielded only E. coli, as the case clinically appeared to be infective. Several single colony subcultures of E. coli were referred. And it goes on and on. Here we are. Clinically, the patient recovered within 48 hours. He had eaten a Cornish pasty for lunch about 36 hours before he came ill. And he said that although the pasty was hot outside, it was cold inside. Subsequent inquiries showed that among 12 student colleagues known to him, four who ate pasties all suffered from diarrhoea, a few with vomiting, within two to three days. And it goes on explaining how this pasty was presented uh, and cooked. Here we are. The pasties were freshly made each day by a local firm, were delivered shortly before cooking. They were put in paper bags. Most were then placed in a heated display cabinet in the refectory where the demand was high. They were usually all sold before 2pm. A few were taken to the common room where the demand was more variable and some occasionally left unsold after 6 p.m these were put these were deep frozen for subsequent use the next day where they were heated in an infrared grill Uh, these pasties were then placed in the heated refectory display cabinet usually before delivery of the fresh pasties so i think james what they managed to do there was identify the problem um Anyway, it obviously links to the broader history of food poisoning. This is a chapter in it. And food poisoning becomes a public health issue in the 1880s in England. Uh, Notification of cases uh, introduced, but not until 1938. And um, gradually over time, they are identifying different causes of, uh, of food poisoning. Um, so by the mid-1890s, they know that um, shellfish could be... Uh, um, uh, contaminated by sewage and um, bad water getting into the selfish uh, flies in the uh, post-war period dark eggs are identified in the interwar period as being a problem um, with them being randomly laid in ponds and in ditches and then uh, meat-borne food poisoning and the dangers of salmonella uh, it's known in, for 1880 but not really identified until the 1900s so i thought this um, poor chap getting poisoned by a pasty james uh, fits into this broader history of um, a really interesting one of food safety in britain brilliant sam brilliant as ever right from there i'm going to take us to the pasty recipe as radical object now mm. follow this line of argument so i was <laughs> i was reading uh, a blog post on the history workshop journal website uh, history workshop journal is a sort of radical um sort of Marxist uh, journal, absolutely brilliant. Uh, You should all check it out, Uh, especially in relation to pasties. uh, A post by Sarah Hjorns entitled Women, Work and Cornish Pasties, Radical Recipes. And the whole thing hinges upon a typed pasty recipe, Cornish pasty recipe, which has handwritten pencil corrections uh and then it is laminated so just imagine that you could imagine this in your own household you know you go and you visit your grandparents you go and visit your you know mother what you know um and you you have recipes all over probably all over the house um and what she's done is taken this and then written a beautiful little blog post 
uh, about it. You know, really looking at the materiality of how it was produced and how we can read that as a radical object. So I'm going to give you a sort of my sort of take take on this because I think it's a terrifically innovative way from something so humble as just a simple recipe. Now, the person connected to it is her grandmother, uh, a woman called Jessie Louisa Bessie Tamblin, who was born in Cornwall in 1906. And very unlike the kind of romanticised notion of Cornwall that you might have nowadays, you may have seen Rick Stein's you know, TV shows on for the BBC on Cornwall. It's presented in a very sort of fluffy, romanticised way. Unlike that sort of image, um, this grandmother is a completely unreconstructed Cornish woman. For her, she and it describes her, her her granddaughter describes her here. She was born and grew up in Cornwall that was poor and isolated, characterised by cheerless Methodism. She was an obtuse and insular woman, deeply suspicious of anyone who wasn't directly related to her. So this cheerless Methodism means that the chapel, chapel language, is absolutely fuses everything. Uh, her way of looking at the world. So she might pass a pub, uh, for example, which she described, according to the author, as that place is a palace of sin. So you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine this. The kind palace of, of sin the is the best name for a pub yes, in the whole world. Yeah, brilliant. And and also, the, picture this: the, the the grandmother, you know, while she's hoovering around the house, she's singing her favourite uh, chapel hymns. Uh, and apparently one of her favourites was When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. So you can imagine the kind of, um, you know, the kind of woman that we're thinking about. And we have a really, we have a really sort of intimate, first-hand knowledge account of the, of the grandmother here. Um, what she then does is then connects this to her, to the, to the, the way in which she um, is not only the sort of the keeper of the family's oral tradition. Okay, so this woman is somebody who who keeps a lot of the stories and law and history of the family, but also the, 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 the domestic knowledge. And in particular here, it's about how the pasty recipe is passed from one generation to the next. And the pasty seems to have had quite an important role within the family. I mean, for her, the pasty is not all about, you know, minors and all those kinds of things, but it's something that she did almost religiously every Friday. And she'd have a pasty-making day, um, and she would um, have all the men of the different branches of family would come round the house and pick up the pasties that she produced for them. So it's a really, you know, really sort of key um, part of the the connectivity of the family. Now to the um, now to the recipe itself. It is, as I said, something that has been that has been typed. It's then um, got all sorts of little holes in it where it has obviously been pinned to various notice boards or kitchen cork boards or whatever in the kitchen. It's got splodges of gravy on it. It's, you know, it's got, as I said, it's got um, little pencil corrections on it. And then it has been set 
in it's been laminated so it's been set in plastic to preserve it over time and what's really interesting is the way in which this blog post unpicks the layers of that as somebody who's interested in the materiality of documents this is absolutely fascinating if we start off it's not the grandmother who has typed this up instead the grandmother has obviously shared the recipe in an oral way um the the author tried to sort of find out how the recipe had got down here and can't really remember it being shared in any way which then takes us to the the mother and uh her mother a woman called sonia um was somebody who was trained as a as a shorthand typist at pitman's college in the late 1940s and in the 50s she had a stint as an as an actress and then sort of and then gets married and so doesn't work but what she what she takes real pride in her skill as a as a secretary uh which was a, a term used during those times it's less less um you know it's not one that we would use um with ease today but certainly it was a a, sent, a word used at the time and she was really proud of her skill uh, as a typewriter would do as a typist sorry and she would do various sort of typing um duties for people within the or typewriting tasks for people within the family she'd produce CVs for them she'd she'd type out letters and what she's done here is she has typewritten uh, this recipe but what's really interesting is the kinds of language that she uses here um, there's a sense in which some of the phrases that she's using uh, are, are sort of her mother's pretensions to Elizabeth David so a sort of fashionable uh, cookery writer at the time using a kind of language that her grandmother certainly wouldn't have used so that so there's a sort of disconnect between the oral tradition and then how the mother seeks to put down the grandmother's recipe so so the mother uses terms such as firm but pliable and golden brown you know which is a sort of you know pretentious pretentious stuff uh, certainly the stuff her, her grandmother wouldn't have done what's interesting then is the way in which the grandmother jesse has gone through to revise some of the um, instructions that the mother has typed up so she revises the quantities and nature of ingredients for example she changes the cooking time to cooking time one hour and so you can see her trying to impose her own authority on it so there's this sort of tension between grandmother and mother there and then what's fascinating is while this is going on um the, an uncle comes along uncle graham comes along and laminates it so you've got this this recipe that has been that has been typed up it's been um it's been amended in pencil by hand it's then been pinned on notice boards and then a a male uncle comes along wants to laminate it for posterity and you know this idea is trying to is trying to preserve that physical presence of it um, to pass on from one generation to another and I think you know I think it's that in itself captures that bait that simple document captures 
uh, a grandmother's relationship with her with her daughter it captures the sort of the 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 skills of the typist mother it the the oral history and culinary knowledge of a of a grandmother and then a desire to to preserve that in posterity to be passed from one generation to the other and the author of the article um the author of the article sarah horns has in fact asked her uncle to leave the recipe to her in his will with the idea that she will then pass that on to her children and so what you've got is a really lovely oral history connected to pasty making being passed from one generation to another and those Cornish skills from the start of the 20th century being passed down to a generation in the 21st century and I thought that was a lovely uh, example here Sam of the way in which history is very much alive. Oh, James, very good indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Not my wonderful. own, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, Sarah Horns. Um, a really yeah. lovely, really lovely blog post on the um, on the History Workshop Journal website. So go and check that out. Not only that, uh, but the, there are oodles and oodles of things out there for people to discover. The internet is a treasure trove of wonderful, wonderfulness. <laughs> thank you for that wisdom at the end there, James. The internet is a treasure trove. Uh, guys, <laughs> thank you for listening to our episode on the history of pasties. And we are going to do... We're going to uh, do disbelief, aren't we, James? Let's do disbelief. We are going to do disbelief. I'm going to go and have right, a pasty for lunch now, I think, Sam Willis. Oh, I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> that's disbelief okay right that's it goodbye goodbye thank you for listening um you can follow me at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history do please listen to the mariner's mirror podcast and you can follow me on twitter at james Daybell. you can follow the podcast at unexpected pod we are also on instagram and facebook so come and make friends with us there check us out on our website historiesoftheunexpected.com for our entire back catalogue and signed copies of our books uh, should you wish to support the way in which we are changing the way in which the world approaches history you can become a patron by heading over to patreon.com uh, and check out our histories of the unexpected page there but meanwhile thank you everyone for listening uh, and do not be in disbelief of this <laughs> that was very good okay very good. cheerio bye 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 guys bye bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.